Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Russia invaded Ukraine three months ago, the world changed overnight. The West woke up. Alliances were tested. And as the shock of the invasion hit the Nordic countries, something fundamental shifted. Our 200-year-long standing policy of military non-alignment has served Sweden well. But the issue at hand is whether military non-alignment will keep serving as well. Two countries with a proud history of neutrality are now applying to join NATO. Now, in a historic shift away from neutrality, both Finland and Sweden have taken steps towards joining NATO. The move is prompted by concern for their own security in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It should be a historic moment for the NATO alliance, but their plans might be scuppered by one member. Recep Tayyip Erdogan remains firmly opposed to Sweden and Finland's bids. We will not say yes to the countries who apply sanctions to Turkey and want to join NATO. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, NATO, Sweden, Finland and Turkey take sides. The world had barely recovered from the shock of Russia's invasion of Ukraine when the unthinkable happened. Finland and Sweden, two countries who had prized their neutrality, suddenly declared they were applying for membership of NATO. The time had come to take sides. But the last fortnight has brought another dramatic twist. Turkey, a member of NATO, is threatening to veto Sweden and Finland's membership. America has stepped in, promising to protect both countries until they become full members of the NATO alliance. I'm proud to welcome and offer the strong support of the United States for the applications of two great democracies and two close, highly capable partners to join the strongest, most powerful, defensive alliance in the history of the world. Britain has also offered assurances and signed its own mutual defence pact with Sweden. But Turkey's President Erdogan shows no sign of relenting. In middle of it all, my colleague Louise Callahan, who's half Swedish and spent part of her childhood in Sweden, is watching events unfold from her current perch in Istanbul where she's based as the Sunday Times Middle East correspondent. 
A few times in the last couple of weeks, President Erdogan has basically gone out and says that he doesn't really think that Finland and Sweden should be let into NATO. At the moment, we are following the developments regarding Sweden and Finland, but we don't hold positive views. It seemed to come out of nowhere. It took everyone by surprise. And this alliance had been kind of geared up towards uh, letting Sweden and Finland in. And then out of the blue comes President Erdogan and says, oh, actually, I think you guys are kind of dodgy. I don't really want you in the alliance. That has started this flurry of diplomacy. And if Sweden and Finland thought that they were going to be able to resolve this quickly, that has very, very clearly been proven not to be quite right. Turkey has blocked talks on Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Both Nordic nations have formally submitted membership bids. New members need unanimous agreement from the 30 current states. But Turkey is standing firmly against. President Erdogan has actually doubled down on his remarks. And from the people that I'm speaking to, it's clear that he's not happy with some of the stuff that's going on in Finland and Sweden. And he wants something in return. Well, we'll come back to President Erdogan and Turkey's role in this a little later, but you're in Istanbul at the moment, but obviously you do have a lot of history with Sweden, and I know you've been there again in the last few weeks. Tell us a bit about your recent visit. I'm half Swedish and uh, I grew up between Sweden and the UK. And because Sweden and Finland were planning on joining NATO, it was starting to become clear that this was actually going to happen. I went back to see what people were thinking. And I cannot overemphasize how much of a big deal this is. Sweden in particular, people there have this self-image that they are neutral, and not only that they're neutral, that they're kind of above great power politics. Now, that's not necessarily true, but they have this real belief that they are different and neutral and kind of a power for good. And that has just been blown apart in the now almost three months since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. In March, the Prime Minister, Magdalena Andersson, was saying, oh no, we're absolutely not going to join NATO. It's not right for Sweden. Lo and behold, a few weeks later, all the leading members of her ruling Social Democrat Party, which have traditionally been very sceptical towards NATO, are being kind of rolled out, pushed out with electric cattle prods <laughs> to say that actually they've decided it's a terrific idea after all. Psychologically, I think for a lot of Swedes, and particularly among the older generation, it is such a big deal. Just the idea that we are no longer quote-unquote, above all this, that there is something fundamentally changing in Europe that is drawing us in, making us a part of this much bigger alliance. Tell me a bit about that, because as you say, this couldn't be a bigger deal for Sweden. It's 200 years officially that they've been neutral. I mean, for you growing up, was there a real awareness of that? Is that sort of part of the national character almost? This idea of 200 years of non-alignment is just burnt into the very fabric of Sweden. I remember learning about it at play school, how glorious and brave it was that we didn't take part in the First or Second World War, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Sweden sold vast amounts of iron ore to Nazi Germany, which helped them continue the war for much longer than they you know, otherwise would have been able to. But especially among the older generation, I was talking to my mum actually when I was back doing the story. She's a nurse and my dad was a doctor. 
And they said that they had been issued with dog tags that they were going to wear, you know, for when the Russians came. There was a strategy in Sweden around like the time of the 60s and 70s called total defense, where everyone knew where they were going to go if the Russians came, if, if a war started. There was this real idea that the Soviet Union could act. And it wasn't any other enemy they were thinking of. You know, obviously it wasn't publicly said that all this defense is because we're afraid of the Soviet Union, but in reality, that was it. So a lot of people, especially among the older generation, remember that very well, remember that fear, and that there used to be huge stores everywhere around Sweden, civilian stockpiles of medicine, food, stuff like that. And the army used to be very large. And then As the Cold War came to a close and as the threat was seen to have changed, you know, the Soviet Union's not the big scary enemy anymore, we've come into a new era, then that started being dismantled. So the Swedish land army is now very, very small. It was reduced by about 90%, I think, from its height in the Cold War. The dog tags were never worn and these stores around the country started being emptied. The threat receded. Now it's coming back. It's like travelling back in time. I mean, that idea of total defence, of an entire nation living in such alertness, being prepared to, to have to defend everything at the drop of a hat, is such a cultural change to what Sweden would have been used to. What's the military there like now? I know you met some of them while you were there. What's their attitude to the changes that might be coming? I had a really interesting chat with a guy called Joachim Schindal, who's a lieutenant colonel head of the 1st Marine Regiment, which is this amphibious force based at a naval base south of Stockholm. And he's 55 years old, and when he joined the Swedish Armed Forces, they were still in Cold War mode, but kind of starting to demobilize a bit. But he said that he was trained basically to defend the Baltic Sea from Russian attack. That was his job. Stop the Russians from coming to Sweden via the Baltic. That requires a lot of expertise because the Baltic Sea is very shallow, especially around the coast of Sweden. And there's a lot of really small islands. So the Swedes are you know, incredible experts at this, or at least were during the Cold War. And basically, since then, that since the armed forces grew much smaller, funding was dropped, and the lieutenant colonel, he's spent his career in places like Afghanistan or Kosovo, where he's part of missions that Sweden took part in, despite not being a member of NATO. Now he said, look, it's, it's just like coming home. He's working with his fighters and his regiment to build up that old capacity that they had. And... And this time, they're working with Finland very, very closely. So their counterparts in Finland, they're actually the Swedish-speaking regiment. So they have this really, really close alliance. They're perfectly equipped to defend the Baltic. And NATO is very clear about that Storbritannia, for example, is more used for what we call blue water, that is, And it's crazy because just on the other side of the Baltic Sea, you have Kaliningrad, which is this kind of Russian outpost in the Baltic. And he says that... Men bara det att de använder specialförbanden och övar landstigning med specialförbanden i likadana båtar som vi har. They have intelligence that the Russian soldiers there are practicing amphibious landings, which could obviously be used against Sweden. You know, it's a bit of a tip-off. That's alarming. Right, but he had this real confidence that this is Sweden going back to what they do best, which is defending the Baltic. A lot of people in Britain certainly might not be aware of the long history between Sweden and Russia and 
how long Sweden has considered Russia a threat. Sweden, for a while in the 17th and early 18th centuries, was trying very hard to get more power in the Baltic and to kind of grow their empire. It's kind of crazy to think about, but but Sweden did used to be a very important European power. They had control over Finland, large parts of what is now Norway, and also parts of the Baltic. So even a part of modern day Germany, Sweden held an area there. So for a while, Sweden was kind of expanding quite aggressively and that put it on a collision course with Russia. Sweden and Russia fought a war towards the end of the 18th century. And then in the Napoleonic Wars, Sweden continued to fight and lose territory. For hundreds of years, especially during this time of Swedish empire, Sweden and Russia were at loggerheads because they were both trying to get influence in the Baltic. And eventually Sweden ceded Finland and they believed that that would give them more opportunities to have more control over Norway. It didn't quite work out that way. And Sweden, as we know today, is not a big empire, whereas Russia controls large amounts of territory and is currently aggressively trying to expand. But the thing that in modern memory, I think, that really, really sticks with people in Sweden in terms of Russian aggression isn't, you know, who got what islands during the... Napoleonic Wars. It's the the Finnish Winter War, which took place at the beginning of the Second World War. Basically, Russia wanted to have control over large parts of Finland. Finland said that they didn't want that to happen. And there was a very bloody war. During that time, Sweden felt very, very, very close to Finland. You know, it's this kind of idea of like a brother nation. And while Sweden didn't declare war on Finland's side, a huge number of volunteers went there. Loads and loads of Finnish refugees came to Sweden. You know, even though it was a long time ago, that's something that people remember very, very clearly, this fear this idea that Russia came very close to to taking Finland if it hadn't been for the unbelievable bravery of the Finnish people in fighting back. So I think that's what Swedish people remember as being that kind of existential threat from Russia. What was it that made Sweden and Finland adopt this position of, of neutrality? Finland was essentially forced into neutrality after the Second World War by the Soviet Union. And Sweden followed suit, really. But Sweden has never faced as much of an existential threat from Russia as Finland does. Sweden does not have a border with Russia. Finland has an incredibly long border with Russia and has in recent memory fought a war with Russia. So you can absolutely understand that real fear that exists within Finland. In Sweden, I think the idea of neutrality was kind of spun by successive governments into this idea that we're just above everything and that we're really just critical on occasion of the US and also critical of the Soviet Union and then Russia and that we're treading a different path. But I think in reality, and this is you know what anyone who has worked at NATO will tell you, Sweden has throughout the Cold War been closer to NATO than even some NATO states. It's been a number of kind of secret alliances. For example, Sweden provided signal intelligence to the Brits and to the Americans, they spy on Soviet activity in the Baltic. Tell us a bit about that, because it's one of those periods in history that we don't hear very much about what Sweden was doing at the time. But I know that you've spoken to to people who whose lives were affected by it too. Yeah, I spoke to this really remarkable guy called Roger Elmabay, whose father, when he was three years old, his father was in a Swedish plane that disappeared over the Baltic. What when was it? 1952, I think. And he grew up just not knowing what happened to his father. 
he knew he was a pilot in the Swedish Air Force and then he disappeared and then no one really said anything. And so he grew up just not understanding what had happened. Had the plane just crashed? Did it have anything to do with the Soviet Union? He just had no idea. And what eventually transpired was that the plane that he was flying had been shot down by the Soviets because it had been a spy plane out to pick up signal intelligence and supply it to to the British. And so even though Sweden technically was neutral in the Cold War, it was very much working with the Allies, working with NATO and providing them with information. It was only after, really, the end of the Cold War that Rorgoth, who's a really great journalist and author, managed to find out what had happened to his father. Wow. And that just gives you a sense of what was happening behind the scenes in terms of collaboration between Sweden and NATO. You mentioned it earlier, but there's also been sort of much more obvious collaboration too, particularly in places like Afghanistan. So Sweden has contributed to NATO missions and taken part in NATO exercises and things like that. But I think for a long time there was a feeling that this is a kind of win-win situation. You know, it works great for NATO to have Sweden on side and it works great for Sweden to take part in NATO exercises but not really be a member. But the calculus completely changed after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think what changed, the impression that I get from talking to people who are involved in this is that Finland saw the invasion of Ukraine and knew that they had to do something. They have this 800-mile-long border with Russia. They had Mm. to act. The the Finns basically made contact with the US and and started this process, and they immediately got in touch with the Swedes to see if they could join at the same time. The reason why the two NATO applications are so linked is because I think the Swedes see it as follows. If Finland was attacked and it was part of NATO, then Sweden would immediately become the kind of major logistics base for where all aid to Finland or even, you know, the the Baltic states, which are also in NATO, would be pouring in. So in that Mm. sense, Sweden would have all the responsibilities of being a NATO member, but without any of the benefits. So I think once Finland said that they were joining, Sweden, Sweden thought they, you know, might as well join also just because otherwise they'd have ended up being the only Scandinavian country not in NATO. Is there still some resistance from from people in, in Sweden? In terms of how the, the public opinion in Sweden has shifted, then before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, only about a third of Swedes wanted to join NATO. Now, even though we've had you know so many warnings of what Russia is doing and so much proof in terms of the invasion of Crimea in 2014, the invasion of parts of Mm. Georgia in 2008. There was just still this view that it wasn't necessary and Sweden didn't really face a threat. But when the invasion began, then that changed. Still only, though, about half of Swedish people want to join NATO, slightly more if you include that that Finland's also going to join. But it's not by any means a really widespread thing that people support. I don't think I spoke to anyone who really desperately wants to join NATO, particularly among the older generation. The overwhelming majority of people I spoke to are just very sceptical about the whole thing. And this has not been, you know, a democratic decision that's been taken in, you know, nice consensus politics Sweden. Today, the Social Democratic Party has concluded that Sweden should join NATO. Our 200-year-long standing policy of military non-alignment has served Sweden well. 
the government have just gone ahead and decided this is what's happening and then they're pushing it through. A lot of people that I spoke to had very little knowledge of what joining NATO would entail. I mean, there's not been talk of, apart from by I think one of the political parties, there's not even been any talk of like a, a referendum or, you know, any wider parliamentary discussion about it. It's just been that it's just kind of gone ahead and that's what's happened. It's come as a bit of a shock for people that have been told all their lives and, you know, even by this current government that we didn't need NATO and and that we were militarily non-aligned, and that we were different, and then all of a sudden they say, well, actually, things have changed. Sweden is militarily non-aligned, but we are not a neutral country and have not been for many years. As a member of NATO, Sweden will not only achieve more security, but also contribute to to more security. Will they be even more worried when they hear the Kremlin making threats of retaliation to, to Norway in particular, you know, with the threat of cutting their electricity supplies. Is there a, a, is there a fear of, of the backlash that might follow? Definitely a fear of the backlash. I think that people are not so worried now, given that Putin has come out and basically said that nothing that bad's going to happen unless there's a massive NATO military build-up in certain ways on the Finnish border. But I do think that there's a fear of hybrid attacks from Russia, so cyber attacks or rising pro-Russian disinformation campaigns, things like that. Coming up, why one member of NATO is trying to stop Sweden and Finland from joining. That's after a quick message from a colleague. Hi, I'm Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times. My job is to try and explain what's going on in Westminster, what the government's doing, what the government's not doing, and why it matters to all of us. But we can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. NATO, I mean, Sweden and Finland joining, what does it bring to the table? You know, you pointed out there sort of the geographic location is certainly uh, a massive benefit if Russia is the great threat. What would they add? First of all, massive geographic benefit. They protect the Baltic. The northern Baltic is then hemmed in by NATO members. And then 
Finland brings this you know, massive land army that it has, or this ability to massively mobilize a land army, I would say. The number of direct, active, constantly working personnel within the Finnish army is relatively low, but there's a lot of people who are in the reserves or who are conscripts. And these are not just reserves who, you know, did their one year of training when they were 18, you know, now they're 50 and overweight and can't use a gun. <laughs> There's a lot of people who could be raised who have retained their training, who have access to arms, who know where to go in the event that something happens. That would be a huge boon. I spoke to one guy who recently left NATO who told me that that's a really big weakness that the Alliance has. Germany is supposed to have the big land army that helps NATO, but he said that there's a feeling that they're not really fully on board at the moment, not entirely pulling their weight. And so having the Finnish armed forces available would be a massive boon because, you know, say Article 5 is implemented, it's going to take the US a while to arrive with all their forces. So having Finland is incredibly important. And in terms of Sweden, like they don't have a big land army, although they are massively investing in that at the moment and trying to build up their defence as quickly as possible. The thing that Sweden has, which is really unique and really important, is they have this knowledge of the Baltic Sea and amphibious warfare and also their submarines. So Sweden mm. has submarines which are able to function really well and are really well-trained and well-equipped and can work in this shallow water in the Baltic Sea. So, I mean, that sounds like an enormous net benefit to NATO. And yet, as we started off in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Turkey really kicking off about their potential membership. Talk us through that. You're in Istanbul. Why is President Erdogan so reluctant to let Sweden and Finland into NATO? For Turkey, the biggest and most important existential threat that it faces, the number one most important thing it believes is the threat from the PKK, which is a Kurdish militant group classified as being terrorist by the UK and the EU. So they think this is the most important problem in the world. And there is an issue where the rest of NATO does not agree that that is particularly a big problem. In Sweden and in Finland as well, there's a very large Kurdish population, very politically active Kurdish population. And there are some people with a Kurdish background who are members of parliament. Now, this, if you're Sweden and Finland, is obviously not a big deal at all, completely fine. And they're very happy to support freedom of expression, freedom of the press. That means that, you know, if you're a Kurdish person calling for a different system in your homeland or for more freedoms for Kurdish people within Turkey, that's absolutely something that Sweden is not going to stop you from doing. For Erdogan, that is tantamount to terrorism. Scandinavian countries are guest houses for terrorist organizations. Members of PKK, DHKPC, are hiding in Sweden and the Netherlands. They are even members of the parliament in some countries. At this point, it is not possible for us to take a positive view. This is where the fundamental disconnect lies. He's saying Sweden's harboring terrorists. Sweden's saying, well, no, we're not. We're just harboring you know, a bunch of people with a Kurdish background who, in many cases, are Swedish citizens and are using their constitutionally given rights to freedom of expression. 
And then so Turkey has asked for a bunch of people who are accusers of terrorism, both within the PKK and also within the group that Erdogan accuses of organizing the 2016 coup attempt in Turkey, followers of a cleric called Fethullah Gulen. He's asked for a number of people who support these groups in Sweden or allegedly support these groups to be extradited to Turkey. Sweden said no because they won't face a fair trial uh, or for various reasons. And so Erdogan's very, very angry about that. He's also very angry that Sweden and Finland won't sell weapons to Turkey. They had an arms embargo after Turkey invaded a part of Syria in 2019. You've actually sanctioned Turkey. Yeah. So there's many things they don't get along on. But the root of this, I think, is this conception of the threat from Kurdish militants and how different that is. I always think it's good to take... President Erdogan at his word. He often really genuinely means what he says. So I I think a lot of Western diplomats who I speak to tend to kind of dismiss it. Oh, you know, oh Christ, he's going off again, that kind of thing. But I I do think they should listen to him because what he's making quite clear, I think, is that he's angry at this thing that we already knew he was angry at, but he's also signaling that he's asking for concessions. Now that's interesting. Is this him trying to bargain with the rest of NATO or with Sweden and Finland? Is is he trying to get something out of their membership? What sort of a deal is he after? That is certainly what a lot of the diplomats and Turkish analysts as well working on this think. They think that he wants something, maybe not even from Sweden and Finland, maybe from the US or from another NATO partner. That could be lifting of sanctions. As you say, it could be buying weapons from various countries in the NATO alliance. It could be moves, a symbolic move perhaps from Sweden or Finland against the PKK. Sweden and Finland seem to be quite reluctant to move ahead with exactly acquiescing to President Erdogan's wishes. At the same time, we don't know exactly what they could be willing to do. Is President Erdogan, is he starting to feel isolated within the NATO alliance? I think that there's a sense in which Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exacerbated fissures within NATO that were there already. And Turkey, for example, has a very different relationship with Russia than many other NATO members do. For Finland... For Estonia, Russia is an old enemy. It is a threat. Whereas for Turkey, it's not necessarily the same thing. Like Lots of Russian tourists come to Turkey all the time. They have really a lot of trade and where they've fallen out in the past. I think there's not the same knee-jerk reaction of, for example, being furious at Putin's human rights record or the ending of democracy in Russia from Erdogan as there is from many other NATO members. I mean, is this in a way almost more about Turkey's problems with NATO? There's always been, I think, differences in between the way that Turkey sees the world and the way in which many other NATO members sees the world. That doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't fit into the alliance or it's not a net benefit to the alliance. But I do think that at the moment, the way that the Western world has united against Russia is slightly uncomfortable for Turkey in many ways. Turkey's very loudly condemned the killing of civilians and things like that. But you know, despite being a key NATO member, it's just not been 100% on the same page as, say, the US and, and lots of Western Europe has been. 
Turkey's geographically in a, a different position. It has historically a different relationship with Russia than much of Western Europe and Eastern Europe in particular. So I think these divisions are just kind of being exacerbated by this. And for Sweden and Finland, who, you know, for Sweden in particular, after 200 years of neutrality, is finally about to apply for membership of NATO. If Turkey does veto that, I mean, they're in an incredibly difficult position. They've sort of been marched up the hill. They've already angered the Kremlin now by saying they're interested. And then they may not get the protection that NATO offers. What then? That is the million-dollar question. But no one that I've spoken to seems to be thinking about that. There's a really kind of widespread belief that this can be fixed. And, well, it's a kind of flashpoint issue at the moment that they can absolutely get past this. Because the US, having gone ahead and convinced Sweden and Finland to join and backing them the whole way, they are not going to just step back and let that go. There's a real belief uh, among diplomats working on this that they're going to be able to get it through. They may be completely wrong. (laughs) They often are. At the end of last week, President Biden reaffirmed his support for both countries joining NATO by inviting both leaders to the White House. During a joint press conference there, the president of Finland, Sauli Ninista, made an appeal to Turkey. Finland has always had broad and good bilateral relations to Turkey. As NATO allies, we will commit to Turkey's security just as Turkey will commit to our security. We take terrorism seriously. We condemn terrorism in all its forms. And we are actively engaged in combating it. We are open to discussing all the concerns. Turkey may have concerning our membership in an open and uh, constructive manner. The Swedish Prime Minister, Magdalena Andersson, also chimed in. We are right now having a dialogue with all NATO member countries, including Turkey, on different levels to sort out any issues at hand. If it does go through and Sweden does become a member of NATO, how much will it change the nation? How much will it change the way it thinks of itself and its place in the world? Practically, it's not going to change anything. But as you say, in, in terms of the identity and how people believe that Sweden fits into the world, it's huge. I think that this is going to make a lot of Swedish people think very long and hard about whether they really were non-aligned before this, whether everything that they've been told is kind of a fairy tale. I know that's the kind of discussion that I was having with people when I was back in Stockholm. You know, even talking to to my family and, and my friends, you know, we've my nephew is in school at the moment and he's been being taught everything growing up about how Sweden is non-aligned and how we used to be neutral. And now they're talking about what NATO means. So I think this is something that's really going to the core of the Swedish identity and challenging a lot of assumptions and a lot of easy stories that the country had told itself. Does it change the country you grew up in? Certainly, yeah, absolutely. And it also reaffirms a lot of old fears that we had been told growing up had disappeared. You know, my grandma, she's 90. I mean, she always spoke about 
the Russians, like they were this clear and present threat, or the Soviets, they were going to come any day over the sea. And that's not at all what I was growing up to believe. I and lots of people my age were taught to believe that the Cold War was over, the threat from Russia or the threat from the Soviet Union was over, and that Sweden had towed this very glorious line in maintaining neutrality throughout this and that we would continue to do so in military non-alignment. That has now changed and now those old fears have come back. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Sunday Times Middle East correspondent, Louise Callahan. You can read more of Louise's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, if it helped you to understand the issues, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. And if you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard then please do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.